You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea in the Old Testament. I'm going to let you cheat. You can use the table of contents, don't worry. Because I can imagine most of us have not looked at the book of Hosea in a very long time. Um, Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at something that I think is incredibly important to understand. And it is the concept of covenant. Uh, God is a covenant-keeping God. C.S. Lewis would... Uh, would put it this way. Uh, he would say, expectations are everything. He's such a, he just has the, the best analogy. He's, he would say this, that if you would walk into a room, and before I let you into that room, if I would say, you're walking into a honeymoon suite, you're walking into a honeymoon suite, and the moment you open up that door, there's no champagne, it's not a nice bed, it's just kind of a dingy little cot in a corner with dirty floors, you'd be incredibly disappointed in that moment if I would say that you're walking into a honeymoon suite. But if I would say to you, before you would walk in there, if I would say you're walking into a jail cell that you're going to spend the rest of your life, then you'd walk in and go, "Eh, this isn't too bad. Because expectations are everything. If you walk in expecting something, it's it's funny, I just had a, 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 I've got a friend in South Africa, and they just opened up a Burger King there. And... People are, like, thrilled. And they have a picture that they put up on Facebook. Like, 150 people in line going to Burger King. So I commented, coming from an American, the only time I see a line at Burger King is to the bathroom. Like, nobody, nobody actually lines up because they're so excited. How many of us know that their expectations will hopefully, uh, hopefully be let down going into Burger King like we all have had? A Burger King is like when you break down and you're, you're at the point of starvation that you go, maybe we should. Maybe. Because expectations are everything. We don't go out and, and, and set our mind on this thing. They've got this expectation. They've got 150 people waiting for Burger King. They actually asked me one time I was there and they said about KFC. Do you have KFC in the States? I said it's called Kentucky Fried Chicken. Where's Kentucky? It's in the States. They line up with this huge expectation. So C.S. Lewis would say that expectations, everything, how we enter into a situation really brings everything about it. So when we look at the scripture, this is the important thing. What are our expectations coming into reading the Bible? How do we understand this book? What does this thing mean? This past week on the Huffington Post, there was an article called Buffet-style Bible Believers. It was really interesting. And maybe you've been following it kind of in, um, in modern culture, the way that the Bible is an incredibly hotly debated topic, uh, particularly in liberal culture, but just in modern culture in general. If you look at what is the Bible, and maybe you've had conversations with this as friends or coworkers or something when you start talking about the Bible, and they begin to pin one scripture against another. I don't know if you've experienced this. This is really um, kind of coming to the forefront recently with some of the modern debates on marriage and things like that. But I want to show you what's interesting about that. Is basically in this article, the writer's saying this, that Christianity, the, the real knock on Christians is that we're just buffet believers. Now, I, I'm, listen, I'm not speaking as a right-wing fundamentalist. I want you to know that. What I'm speaking as a person that holds true the scripture, and you'll see how I define that in just a moment. But the knock on Christians is, well, you believe in one thing, but you don't believe in another thing because the Old Testament says you can't eat shellfish. The Old Testament says you can't wear two clothes that are meshed of the same fabric or different fabrics. You're not allowed to do that. So if you're going to believe that, then you have to believe this. How many people have experienced that? Anybody? 
So you kind of get into this thing. Well, that's an ad hoc argument for this reason. The reason that it doesn't work is that it's appealing to authority by authority to get rid of authority. It doesn't make sense. It's like taking off all of the stool legs and then ultimately there's nothing left to sit on. You can't attack authority by appealing to authority and then saying that there is no authority. That doesn't make sense. So what I want to suggest to you is that we don't have to look at the Old Testament and say, "Uh uh-oh, I was just at the shore and I just had shrimp. What am I supposed to do? Or when you go shopping, you're looking through the back of your clothing to make sure the materials, it's 100% cotton, the fabric of our lives, all right? Like, you don't, you don't have to go through that. It shrinks if you put it in hot water. We don't, we don't have to do that. Why? Because we don't have to interpret, interpret the scripture literally in every case as much as naturally. What, what I mean by that is this. When you open up the book of Song of Songs, it's a, an Old Testament book also called the Song of Solomon. There's a scripture that says, and her neck is like 10,000 shields. Now, we understand when you're reading poetry that he wasn't looking at... Now, men, if you try that with your spouse or girlfriend later, it will go bad. Your neck is like 10,000 shields. She'd go, huh? Well, we either have one of two options in that moment. We either have to say the Bible's wrong because there's no way that it could fit 10,000 shields, which at that time was about the size of a man, or if it was a smaller one, the one that would fit in the hand... So she was either a real big woman, like Jenny Craig couldn't help her, big, 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 like 10,000 shields. Or that's not what he was saying. What he's saying is that he's using allegory, symbolism, that your neck is like 10,000 shields as he's trying to say, or as, uh, as a deer pants for otter, so my soul longs for you. In Psalms, David is speaking in this allegory, in this metaphor of saying, I'm longing for something. So we have to understand Scripture in light of Scripture. So we see this go terribly awry when you come into the book of Revelation, which is really gets people all worked up because they see a beast with seven heads, and then they start trying to figure out, all right, well, that's got to be this helicopter because this helicopter has got a head on it, and it's got these 10,000 things on it going on. That's what it means. That's not necessarily what it means. It's allegory. It's apocalyptic literature because to read the Bible is to interpret the Bible. Now, maybe you'll run into people, I just believe the Bible. Well, do you? Well, great. So does everyone else. It's not, do you believe the Bible? It's, what do you believe the Bible to be or to say? Because to read the Bible is to interpret the Bible. You cannot read it without interpreting. There is no such thing as an unbiased approach to Christianity or reading the Bible. You have to because nobody has a clean uh, epistemological starting point. You don't start off and you get to go, I come into this thing with no bias. And everyone else is biased but me. We don't have that liberty because we all carry in our pet doctrines by a leash or whatever it is. We bring them in. So we, we come in with this starting point and we have to ask ourselves, what is the guiding point of understanding the Bible? How do I know, okay, if I believe this is true, if not, what, what do I reduce it down to? Let me give you a couple of the popular things that people reduce the Bible to. It's just a rule book. It tells me to do and not do. Unfortunately, many churches reduce the Bible just to a rule book, which grossly misses the point. Others, it's a bedtime story. It's just simply at night before your kids go to bed, you want to inspire them to tell them, you know, you can do all the things, you know, you can be anything you want. You can go kill Goliath. And the little kid shows up at school, gets snoppied out of him, comes home and goes, Mom, what happened? I used my sling. Well, he was, he was three feet taller than you, buddy. That's not the point of the story. 
So it's either a bedtime story. We look at something. You know, I was listening to this recently, and I'm not, I'm not, I want you to hear me in case you're showing your kids this. I'm not against them. But there's a popular cartoon called Veggie Tales, and it's a Christian little thing with the vegetables that jump around and stuff. And, and, and it's cute. It's good. There's some of it that's funny. The only problem is you can't crucify a tomato. You can't crucify a tomato. It makes a mess. See, the point of the Bible is not about good moral stories about loving your neighbor and trying to be a better person. It's about who Jesus is and how he interprets and makes sense of the rest of the Bible. A few months ago, I had a guy swing by the church here to, to talk with me. And uh, he came into the office and he sat down and he goes, you know, yeah, he was talking about trying to sell us some advertisement stuff. And he goes, oh, I'm a Christian. And I said, well, that's great. I'm a Christian too. He kind of looked at me, you know, well, I'm a pastor. And he goes, well, I'm a Christian. I said, that's great. And I said, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? And at that point, I saw sweat beads break out on his head because he realized that this was no longer a sales job, but now he's back in catechism. So he's trying to figure out, what, what do I say? So he goes, well, you know, I, you know just uh, to be a good person, you know, raise your good, be a good person, love your neighbor as yourself, um, try not to do bad, do, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated. And I said, man, I said, you know, that's a great definition you have. Um, that, however, works for Islam. Um, just as much as it does for Christianity, if that's the definition. And he kind of stopped and went, yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you want to buy this thing? And, I, and I tried, what I was trying to say to this is this. Christianity is not about instruction. It's not about rules. I want you to hear this. It's about redemption. It's about God restoring mankind. It's not that it doesn't have rules. It's that that's not its intended primary purpose. Because Jesus is the only only person, first of all, who claims to be God, that in doing so, he doesn't say, I come to bring you a new teaching. You know, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I come to bring you a new teaching. What he does is he says, I've come to show you the way to God. That's interesting. He doesn't just say, I've come to bring you another way, another teaching, or if you do this, then you'll get in. If you don't do this, you'll get out. No, he says, I've come to redeem you. I've come to save you. Christianity is not about a teacher. It's about a rescuer. It's about redemption. Totally different thing. We'll see that in just a moment. So bedtime stories, moralism, just rules. Other people view the scripture as just religious manipulation. It's just something that we try to find something. How can we control people to do what we want to do, which was done particularly in the Middle Ages? How can we use this concept of God? Because I personally know that any idea of God and fear, those two things can be rather compelling. If you tell somebody that God is angry with them in that way, you can use that in a way that's rather compelling and rather manipulative. So do we just view it as that, or do we you know, view the scriptures as just old stories, things that happened in the past that no longer apply to us? They, they were true, but what is that? If you can, if you found the book of Hosea, turn with me there. I want to suggest to you that the overarching understanding of the Bible not just of the Bible, but of Christianity as a whole, and as we're going to see over the next few weeks. Christianity is not just something that we attend a church service on Sunday mornings, but the basis of this is found in the very nature and character of God, and it's found in the foundation of covenant. The book of Hosea, if you can turn with me, it says this in chapter 13, verse 4 through 6. We'll have it there in just a second for you. Hosea 13, 4 through 6. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. 
Let me tell you about Hosea. Hosea is really an interesting prophet. He's considered, theologians call a minor prophet. It doesn't mean that he wasn't important. It just means he was a smaller book. And Hosea's interesting story, it opens up in the beginning of chapter 1. And God tells Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute named Gomer. Now, if the Lord told me to marry a prostitute, I would call that a bad day. If he told me to marry someone whose name was Gomer, that's a really bad day. Now, if your name Gomer here or your middle name is Gomer, I do apologize. That's a rough day. That's a rough, that's a rough start at life. You, you're starting behind the eight ball. If God would say to me, marry a prostitute, I would go, all right, this is a little odd. If he'd say, now marry one named Gomer, I'd go, Lord, have mercy on my soul. So God tells this man, Hosea, to marry a prostitute. Now, in my mind, that's insane. And what he says is this. The reason I want you to go marry this woman named Gomer, who's a prostitute, is because my people have been unfaithful to me. And in the Old Testament, what we see is that these prophets literally begin to act out the relationship of God with his people. So God tells Hosea, marry this woman named Gomer, and then just two chapters into it, they begin to have kids. And they begin to name them all of these crazy names. One of their names means no mercy, where God says, I don't have mercy towards these people anymore because they've totally rejected me. And then it says this into chapter 3, Hosea, it says this, The Lord said, go and love a woman who's loved by another man, an adulteress. So he marries this woman. She cheats on him. And then God goes, go buy her back. Go buy, the, buy her back, redeem her, pay the price for her prostitution. Buy her off the guy that stole her from you. Pay the price. So Hosea follows suit, buys Hosea, or buys Gomer back. I don't know why he didn't try to change her name, but anyways, still working through that theologically. But he, he goes and he buys her out of prostitution. He pays the price. Then we see the story continue to go on where we don't understand actually from the story, we don't know if she actually ever came back to him in some real um, marital faithfulness way. What we see is that this woman, for the rest of our lives, her life, as far as we know, was not faithful to Hosea. It doesn't have a happily ever after ending. So what a weird story. I mean, imagine you're, if we look at the Bible through some of those lenses we talked a few minutes ago about a rule book. Well, what's the story of Hosea? If we look at it as a rule, but how do we moralize that? How do you tell that to a bedtime story to your kids? So there was a man named Hosea, children, and his wife was a prostitute. Mommy, what's a prostitute? It's someone who sells themselves for money. Oh, like, like, a, like a cleaning? Like a cleaner? Someone that washes your clothes? No, someone that takes off your clothes. You, you can't do that. You can't moralize. I want you to see this. You can't moralize the story of Hosea because there, there's no real... What, what principle do we take out of Hosea? Um, be a good husband when your wife leaves you. Okay, I mean, I guess you could derive some type of secondary principle out of that. But how do you reduce that to a rule? There is no rule. What is the guiding interpretive lens when I put on that lens? When I was younger, I went into the nurse's station, and I, I, I thought I had perfect vision. And it was kind of funny because looking back at it, I was always complaining about how small print there was on TV commercials. Then I realized when I got glasses, you can read it. Like, I thought, it was, I thought people were wacky for saying you could see shapes in the clouds. 
Because to me, I didn't have glasses. Everything was blue with white patches and grass looked like a big green carpet. And when I put glasses on, I went, you can see this thing. And I'll never forget going to the nurse's station. You're turning that little thing, right? And you're turning, and you see, what numbers do you see? And she goes, you need glasses. I went, no, I can see fine. Because in my mind, the lens that was guiding my life, I could see fine. But she said, you needed something. The moment I put them on, all I could do the rest of the day was go, Keep taking them out and go, I can see again. I can see. This is real. This is life. I can see it. See, all of us have some side of guiding lens that sees the scripture. So God comes to this guy named Hosea, and we got to go, what is this about? Well, what's interesting about this story is that this is not just some random happening in the, in the middle of history. God goes, hey, Hosea, go marry that prostitute. Go for it. The guy's like, yeah. But that, that's not it. What it is is that this story as I read just a moment ago in Hosea 13, is that when God created this good, good, good world, God created this perfect world. It was good, and it still is good. But something fractured it. Something's not right. Last night, we we watched the movie, and I'm probably going to destroy the name. It's either incredible or abnormal or panoramic. I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was about the tsunami that happened on the coast of Thailand. Anybody see that movie? Won some sort of award recently. And it was heart-wrenching to watch the story. It's really an incredible movie, but if you're easily moved to tears or don't sleep well after watching a movie, I would suggest watching it for breakfast because it'll keep you up at night. Um, But watching this movie, it's incredible to see the devastation and the whole time during it, the whole time during the movie, it's almost like you see something that This raw, how can a tsunami happen? How can this disgusting brokenness in this world, how did this happen? And why can't we stop this? And it's almost like the whole movie, you're feeling this story slip through your hands of the wrong that you're just wishing would be made right, and you know nothing will make it right. But yet in the middle of the movie, you see these glimpses of redemption and restoration where family members meet up. I won't blow the story for you, but you see where hope is restored. And in those moments, it's really just the tip of the iceberg for the way this world looks. We have this brokenness. I don't, does anyone feel that sometimes when you come face to face with death, with sickness, with disease, when the world just doesn't feel right? And yet we're longing. There's something in us. J.R. Tolkien would tell us that that little bug that's inside of us isn't just happenstance, but God puts something in us that's longing for this world to be made right. Everybody's longing for it. So God creates this perfect world, and we still see glimpses and glimmers of it. Then it breaks. It's broken. It's fractured. But God instantly comes to Adam and Eve and provides a sacrifice for them right away, and he says, I'm going to make a promise that one day this world is going to be completely made whole. Christianity is not about an escaping out of this world. Christianity, to be a Christian is not about let the world go to hell and we sit in our closet or church and we just go, thank God we're saved, they're not. No, no, that's not what it is. God would tell us, he's not afraid of this world, but he actually sends us back into the world as agents of hope and restoration that can offer people a part of what God is going to do in the future right now. 
I can bring hope and I can bring restoration. And that's not just praying for people uh, when I run into them. It can be that. But that could be bringing real hope to, to areas that are broken in finance, broken in health, broken in music and arts that are so corrupted. I, I think it's wild when you watch award shows. Here's this beautiful art that lifts our spirits and we see these singers and it's something so exciting. And they get up and they go off like Madonna at the recent award show for like 15 minutes on how amazing she is. And it's like, that's not what art is supposed to be. Art is not supposed to inspire people to love you. You're using your art for your selfishness. You see award shows, yeah, I just want to thank myself. All my fans, everyone that got me here because I'm amazing. And Jesus Christ at the end. No, 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 I'm not, no, I'm not saying you got to get up there and go, I just want to thank Jesus Christ and you got to sing how great is our God before you accept your award. I'm not saying that. But this world has taken good things and has twisted them. And as Christians, what God does is he gives us the tools to go back and show what family is supposed to look like, what hope is supposed to look like. So God at the beginning of creation, creates this beautiful world that's fractured, but he makes a promise. He makes a covenant right from the beginning. What's interesting about a covenant is that if we, when we enter into covenant as mankind, for instance, marriage, you get up, you take this husband or this man to be your husband. I do. You take this woman, you know, to be your lawful, which always confuse me because it sounds so close to awful, but you, lawful wedded wife. I'm thinking, an awful wedded wife? I don't want one of those. Um, no, but, but you say, I do. And you enter into covenant, and it's a two-sided covenant. But what's unique about Christianity, I want you to see this, is that Christianity is not a two-sided covenant. It's not a covenant where God says, I'm going to do this, and I want you to do this. When he makes a covenant, he says, I will. I will do this. When he comes to Abraham, he says, I will bless you. I will. It's a one-way street. Christianity is not a two-way street. It's a one-way street of God's free gift of mercy and grace through Jesus Christ comes to us. So we look at the book of Hosea. And we recognize that in its unique time and context, it had to do with God's interaction with his people of God. But you know what? Today, it deals with us. We've got a perfect God. Maybe you've been around coworkers and friends that complain about their spouse all the time. Just by a show of hands. Anyone hear that? Or the girlfriend, boyfriend type of thing? Wow, I've got an awful husband. I've got this, I've got that. It's like, it's, all you hear is that he's, you know, he's so bad. Oh, he just drives me nuts, blah, blah. Well, what if you had the perfect husband? What if you had the perfect wife? But if you had the, I'm not talking about like, you know, don't lean over and rub the leg and go, you're, you know, you're it, baby. I mean, I'm serious. No, 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 no. What if you have the, I'm talking about perfection. The point, not when you just say, I love you. No, but I mean really perfect to the point where they could never fail. The truth is, if we had that perfect thing, it only really should take us a little bit of time before we realize our innate brokenness, which is inside of us. We sang that song this morning, I Breathe You In, God. And that, talk about dependency upon God. We drove through a tunnel just yesterday on the way back from the shore. How many people hold their breath going through a tunnel? How many people have got lightheaded holding their breath going through a tunnel? While driving. Okay, now that's really, you're committed. You come through and the officer is like pulling you over. Do you realize how fast you were going? 
No, officer, I understand, but I was about to pass out and kill the whole car. I was going to do a pile-up. I had to get through that tunnel. Oh, you're holding your breath? Okay, go ahead. No, 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 he doesn't, he doesn't do that. If you hold your breath for like two minutes, three minutes, unless you're that David Blaine that gets in the water tank, I don't really know how he does that, but if you did that, you're going to pass out because you are dependent on something external constantly. So in life, big things can kill you and small things can kill you. You can get an infection that's like the size of like a little microscopic thing and it can wipe you out. Because you're dependent on something bigger. Because although we have glimpses of hope, big things can kill us, small things can kill us, anything can take you out. Why? Be, I'm, not, I'm not trying to scare you. Everyone's like, oh, Lord, watch out. You know, get the seatbelt on here. No. What I'm saying is this, is that there's a, there's a brokenness in us that's not perfect. So then we come and we look at God, the perfect God. If we understand him for perfection, what he is, I think it's important to make this note. C.S. Lewis would say it like this, that suffering is not a problem so much for the believer as much as it is for the unbeliever. Because the fact that the moment's pain and suffering exists, what's the first thing people do? They either blame God or they shout out, God, where are you? He says that that's the greatest apologetic for an existence of God for the reason that this, what is in you that's programmed for something to be right? If there's no such thing as an external, outside of you, right and wrong measurement, then when something goes wrong, why don't you sit there like a stoic and go, this is life. No one does that. And if you do, you haven't experienced something that's close enough to your heart. Because when something truly goes wrong, you'll look for something that's going to be made right. So here we are, this broken individual that is much better at casting blame than taking it. And we see this perfect God. And like Hosea, God has married himself to us, an unfaithful bride. And we only have three responses in a relationship with God. How do we interact with God? It's one of three things. First, it's irreligion. The irreligion, the response of irreligion says this, that I don't need God. I'll define my own God, that I'll find another love that brings satisfaction. I'll go out and I'll find, uh, whether it's a job, if it's a, a relationship, multiple relationships, if it's power, success. We went through this before. I'll summarize it by like this. You can see a city's idol from miles away. So if I say Nashville, the first thing you think is music. If I say Los Angeles, you think film. If I say New York, it's actually everything, but particularly money and power. If I say Boston, it's education. Looking at something, you can see that that is their functional savior. That's the thing that saves them, that loves them. So the response of irreligion says this. Irreligion goes, you know what? I don't need God to be my defense, as we stated. I'm going to find my satisfaction in my degree my prestige, my family, in the spot that I vacation in, wherever. We, we had a, some friends of ours have a penthouse suite in Ocean City. And it's, it's, it's really funny. I get in, and they're like, what, what floor is it? So I tell them the top floor, and the people go, oh, wow. And I go, it's not mine, it's friends. Oh, you shouldn't have said that. You should have just said it's yours. Well, it's my friends. I don't even got to lie about it. I'm staying here for free. Oh, wow. You, you got the penthouse suite. Yeah, we do. It's friends. You should, you should have lied about it. Well, in that moment, what, what, what did she reveal? That her functional savior, her functional love, 
was people's opinion of who she was. In that moment. You, you should have said that you were on the top floor. Why? So now the person that I've got an extra 10 seconds on an elevator with goes, he's a big deal. Little does she know I get home to Scranton and I'm cooking chicken on my second floor thing on the back grill going, not a big deal. Now I'm just your average guy that happens to have a friend who's not an average guy, all right? In that moment, though, she revealed my functional savior is the way that people view me. Now, all of us have something like that if we're led astray, if we're not really pulled in by the gospel. All of our hearts will go there, and you need to know what yours is. Because whether it's a relationship, oh, if he just affirms of me, if he just likes me, then I'm in. I feel good. Or if I could just have that job, if I could just have that car, if I could just have that title, if I could just outwork my parents, if I could just have somebody say that you're great at sports or great at uh, whatever. You could fill in the blank because you could do it with anything. And that's what irreligion does. Irreligion looks at it and says this, that although God has come to me and has offered me through the person of Jesus Christ love and relationship and covering and satisfaction, irreligion goes, I think I can find it elsewhere. I'm going to find my satisfaction in, not in the creator, but in the created things. Number two is the path of religion. path of religion looks like this. I can stay faithful to God. I can do this. God is good, so I'll be good back. I'll be the perfect Christian. I'll never fail. Every, every time that something goes wrong, um, I'll either blame somebody else. No, I, nothing else. I'll be perfect. I'll pray every day. I'll read every day. I'll give every day. Whatever I got to do, I'll serve the poor every day. Have you ever been around somebody that's like that? that this takes on all different types of shapes and sizes, whether it's Christian or not. Recently, I had an interaction with somebody in the city. And um, she's not a believer to the, as far as I know. But when you talk to her, just in a normal conversation, like, would you like a tissue? You get a resume of what she's done for the poor. Just on the way to handing the tissue box. It's like, well, we actually sent tissues overseas to Afghanistan uh, last month. Oh, that's really great. Yeah, um, I'm getting a little hungry. I am a little bit hungry, too. I've been fasting for the poor. And my family's been giving all of our food away for the past six months. Oh, that's really great. And, and, and now listen, those things aren't intrinsically bad. There's nothing bad about that. But what's happened is the path of religion takes on forms of Christianity and unchristian forms too. When it says this, that I can prove to God, I can do this thing. I'm going to show God I'm the perfect Christian. I'm never going to screw up. The only problem with that is that when we think about adultery, not just marital unfaithfulness, but Jesus in the New Testament says that marital unfaithfulness is not just physically cheating with another person. It's not just when you lie in bed with them and make your magic. That's not the thing. Adultery is when you look at another person with lust and jealousy in your heart. And I know men and women alike in here are looking at this physique this morning and you're struggling. It's tough. And you're just thankful I got this coat on because these muscles go... I'm like the Hulk. If I flex, it goes crazy. Ooh, you didn't see it. All right, no, I'm the flash too. All right, listen. That, 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 that's, I'm joking about that in case everyone's like, oh no, he caught me. No, that's not it. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm totally kidding. The gospel brings this whole new thing to bear on us that you, in external commitment, can never please God. 
If it's up to you, if on your, on your outside, if you could really do it, you'll never be able to do it. So religion says, I can. Well, the truth is, I can remain faithful to God. Well, maybe on the surface you can. Like when you're in a swimming pool and you take that ball and you put it between your legs and you feel it starting to come up and you just keep pushing it down. Have you ever had anything like that? Who's bad at hiding secrets? When you're holding a secret in, you just got to tell somebody. They have nothing to do with it, but you just have to tell them. You call up a friend from another state just to get it out. I got to tell you about, I don't even know who that person is. I just got to tell you. See, on, on the surface, religion says, I can remain in good unity with God. But underneath, it's constantly bubbling up. Finally, it's the third path. It's the path of the gospel. We relate to God on one of these three streets. The first two are the same thing. They're just going in opposite directions. Irreligion and religion. They both at the center say, I'm my own God. Finally, it's the gospel. What does this look like? What does covenant look like? Covenant is this, that God has taken on the punishment of our unfaithfulness. The God in Christ is both the perfect spouse, the perfect husband, and also takes the punishment of the unfaithful. Wow. Romans 5 says it like this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam... So for by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ took on our sinfulness, our wickedness. He took on all of our idolatry in his physical person. He took it on himself and destroyed that on the cross. He fulfilled the I will by saying, it is finished. But yet Christians and non-Christians continue to hear the word, it is finished, and we try to add everything we can to it. Have you ever done that when you're baking? Which I've rarely attempted to do, I'll be honest. You ever try to cook something, and you go, I just think it needs a little more salt. A little more salt. You know the right amount of salt? Perfect. Too much salt, you can't taste the food. It's like, this is great, Salt, expensive salt you have here. This is a wonderful steak salt. I just want to add a little bit more. No, no, no. Jesus says it's finished. He is the faithful spouse. Take it perfect. The one that never deserved to be accused. The one that never deserved to be downtrodden. But yet Isaiah 53 says this, that like a sheep to his shears he was led He was crucified, the ultimate injustice, because the truth is, in those moments, you know what's interesting about it? I don't really understand this. When something goes wrong, why do we feel like we deserve right? You ever actually thought about that? When something goes wrong, first thing we go is, they're such a good person. Something goes wrong. Well, compared to who? You Compared to the serial killer, yes, they're a pretty good person. Compared to Mother Teresa, I give him like a five and a half, six. Well, how do we get this scale of good? Yeah, they're a little bit better than that person. They're not as good as that person. They're a good person. It shouldn't happen to them. I'll say this. God's grace and his mercy, he's put these little echoes in our heart that is searching for, seeking for things to be made right. We don't deserve it at all. At all at all. But yet, He puts that thing in us that longs for justice. 
But yet the very person who didn't deserve anything, Jesus Christ, did not deserve to be killed, dies an obedient death. Hebrews would say it like this. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's awesome. The perfect spouse, the perfect one, never failed, never sinned, with no deceit, didn't have that thought. The perfect covenant fulfiller. This morning as we close, if I could have um, our band come forward just for a few moments as we wrap up this morning. It's important that we look at the scripture naturally and not just that we interpret it on our own right. That we look at it and we say, I hope you see the, how hollow it is or how flimsy. Have you ever had a cheap hotel towel? You stayed at like the Red Roof Inn or Motel 6 or something like that? Man, this would be great. We could save a couple bucks. Holiday ends next door. You hold up the towel while looking at a friend, and you see, you make eye contact through the towel. I had a friend of mine, he travels, he travels all over the place, and this uh, church he was at, put him up in a, a cheap hotel like that, and he travels all over the place, and he got to the point where he's like, I've been in so many hotels, and he's like, I would never complain to the church, but he said there was a holiday inn across the street, so he actually left the hotel, he purchased his own hotel, and then before they'd pick him up, he'd go back to the other hotel and ruffle the, the blankets a little bit. He said, I just can't do it. He said, I've been in this thing way too long. I'm 60 years old. I can't be, you know, I can't be washing with a, a towel that I can see through. I thought that was funny. I hope you can see through the transparency and how hollow religion is. How hollow this idea of just moralizing the Bible. Like, really, um, Hosea's in the Bible, so what do you do about that? Well, kids, no, that's not going to work. Try that later tonight. I would prefer you don't. Veggie Tales has steered away from Hosea. What's the point of the Bible? What's the overarching theme? Let me tell you what it is. It's covenant. God made an eternal covenant in the triune God between Father, Son, and Spirit. And this, is, this covenant, this eternal covenant, is not dependent upon us. It's that, it's that this, that I will offer and I will love mankind and I will constantly pursue them and I paid the price, whether they choose me or not. That's wild. Now here's the scary part. People still have a choice. That's the, that's the scariest part. That God took all, everything on himself, but yet he still looks and goes, I'm the husband who has never failed you and will satisfy you all the time. But yet people still have a choice. This morning, we have a choice. The gospel is not, is not, come to church more, read your Bible more, give an offerings, volunteer your time to the poor. All of those things should be responses. A little bit softer on that before I feel like I'm taking off. Um, All of those things are responses to the gospel, but they can be faked. You, You can fake worship. Let me show you. And just, I don't know, mouth... Josie's on a vacation far away or something like that. Everyone go, wow, he's spiritual, you know? <laughs> it's like, don't.
don't stop believing. Hold on to this feeling. Oh, you, you, you can mouth that, and everyone goes, "Man, they they they're in it today." No, 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 you can you can fake you can fake it. And actually, in the book of Hosea, and I didn't go there just because of the time. God actually comes through the prophet Hosea and says this. He begins to condemn the people of God. And he keeps saying this, you're missing the point. And then he answers their question and he says this, sacrifices and offerings I don't desire, but mercy and love. Because what they were doing in that moment was they were ready to negotiate with God and say, God, I deserve, I gave offerings. I, I, I sacrifice to you. I'm in right standing with you. And God goes, no, you've missed the point. Anybody can sacrifice. Anybody can worship. Anybody can give offerings. But you're missing the point of this. Those are responses, not an introduction. If you've truly experienced grace, I promise you, if you experience the gospel, you will worship. You will sing. You will give. But I, the scariest thing is that you can do all of those things and never experience grace. Grace.